0: You celebrated a Passover. You celebrated a meal together with your disciples. But at that meal, someone showed up, someone that was not invited. So, Lord, tonight as we look at your word, may we be able to identify who that is, but also to see what it is that you've done to help us take care of this problem. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That may have sounded a little odd, that the night when Jesus was betrayed and he celebrated the Passover, that there was an uninvited guest. Now maybe some of you thought, well, that's got to be Judas, right? Wrong. I mean, Judas was invited. But there still was an uninvited guest that Maundy Thursday evening. In fact, this guest is never, ever invited to a party that I'm aware of. No one wants him around. Yet he is very subtle. No one knows he's there until he's done his damage. He's good at stirring up trouble. He's good at starting arguments. Sometimes the arguments turn into fights, and sometimes the fights turn to war. Needless to say, whenever he enters a room, somebody is going to get hurt. Of all the places for him to be that night, There he was in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. Now you would think that he would not be able to enter into that room, but he did, and he did what he does best. He took the words of Jesus and used them to get his disciples to focus on themselves. Let's begin to these words. Jesus speaking, but here at this table sitting among us as a friend is the man who will betray me. Then the disciples began to ask each other, which of them would ever do such a thing? And they began to argue among themselves as to who would be the greatest in the coming kingdom. Now, who is this uninvited guest that crashed Jesus' dinner party? Who is this uninvited guest who shows up in the church at Corinth, who is the uninvited guest who has intruded into the lives of countless different congregations, countless Bible classes, countless small groups? Well the uninvited guest is named Division. He is a servant of Jesus. And there he was, Mr. Division, in the upper room. When Jesus said that one of the disciples would betray him, division went to work. Division blinded each disciple to the fact that he had the capacity to actually betray Jesus. And so what did the disciples do? At least in the Luke narrative, it says they began pointing fingers at one another. Now, not literally, but surely in their minds. I mean, is it Peter? Could it be John? I mean, what about Matthew? After all, he's a tax collector. You know, and Thaddeus, I've always kind of wondered about Thaddeus. It must be Thomas. I mean, Thomas is always thinking about something weird. But never once, at least in this narrative, does anyone say, what if it's me? What if it's me? Instead, they all kind of point at other people and never notice. You ever notice that when you point one finger at someone that there are three fingers that point back at you, and there's actually one finger that points up as if to say, and God, I blame you for this person. Luke tells us that their discussion about the betrayer then suddenly took another right-angle turn and turned into an argument about who was the greatest among them. Now, I don't know exactly what happened in that discussion, but... I kind of wonder maybe whether Peter thought to himself, well, it can't be me to be the betrayer. I mean, after all, I was the very first one that Jesus called. I mean, so therefore, someday I will be his right-hand man. John might have thought, well, you know, it certainly can't be me. After all, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. Maybe Matthew thought, well, it really can't be me. I mean, after all, my background in taxes qualifies me for the position of managing money in the new kingdom. I'm surely going to be secretary of the treasury. Andrew might have thought, man, it can't be me. After all, I'm the one who brought the loaves and the fishes so God could feed these people. I'm the one who invited other people to come. But see, division had suddenly succeeded. The disciples were now divided, they could easily be conquered now. I've been around in churches long enough to know that no congregation is immune to having this guest, uninvited guest, show up. No church is immune to the sting of division. No denomination is too holy for him not to enter. No small group, no Bible study is so full of the Holy Spirit to keep him away. He is the most diabolical of all of the demons. He is constantly looking for some way to worm his way in. You know, all it takes is just a, a small little crack in the armor. He only needs a small place to inject his lethal vision. No saint is too holy... No pastor is out of his reach. No church leader is beyond his grasp. Division is one of Satan's big guns. You know, something else I think I've learned over the years is I don't think division wastes much time on lukewarm Christians. I don't think division wastes much time on cool congregations. After all, lukewarm Christians and cool congregations all seem to be focused on themselves anyway and are divided to begin with. I mean, Satan is very familiar with the words of Jesus that said, a house divided cannot stand. I mean, this demon is powerful enough to split Christ's church into east and west. He has divided the west into Catholic and Protestant. He has divided the Protestant church into Unbelievable numbers of denominations. I actually checked this out. Google, you know, the authority on everything, says that there are 38,000 different denominations just in the United States. I mean, there is there is no weak foe. In fact, Jesus says the only way you can get rid of him is through prayer. You know, there's still division among Jesus' disciples. There's division over styles of worship. Should we have a praise band? Should we have an organ? We have division over church structure. Who should vote? Who should not get to vote? We have a division over authority, division over how money is spent. We have division over which translation of the Bible should be read. Division over how one is to be baptized. Should they be dipped, dunked, sprinkled, sprayed? You know, there's division over who can participate in Holy Communion. And there's even division among Jesus' followers over. You know, really important things like the color of the carpets or where to hang the founding pastor's picture in the hallway. You ever notice how we can argue about almost anything in church? We can argue about everything from spiritual gifts to the pastor's hairstyle. But you know, the ugliest and most divisive divisions have always been around power and authority let me go back to the text verse 24 and they began to argue among themselves as to who would be the greatest in the coming kingdom. those two little words would be not who was the greatest but who would be the greatest. But friends in reality there's not a one of us here tonight who could be considered the greatest. None of us are great. No congregation, no church is greater than another one. I mean, greatness, if you think about it, is just really an illusion. I mean, greatness is so relative. I mean, I I can look like a really good person compared to some people and look like a pile of dirt when you compare me to other people. It's kind of a sad commentary on Christians when division is allowed to enter the ranks. So let me ask all of you a question tonight. Just a couple of questions to think about. How easily do you fall prey to division? How easily do you fall prey to division? And the second question, from whom are you divided today? Think of some people that there's a pretty broad division between you and another person today. The question is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? I mean, what if there is division in families or marriages or churches or Bible studies or whatever? What are you going to do about it? Now, I've asked this question one time, I had a whole bunch of people in a Bible class, I said, what do, you, what do you think we ought to do about it? And a whole bunch of people raised their hands, and I said, who cares what you think about it? Let's go back and see what God says about it. <laughs> I'm going to do that tonight, too. It's not that I really don't care what you think about it. But I think it's wise to go back into the, into the text one more time. I want, you, I want to read a couple of verses again from Luke 22. Verses 19 to 20 and verses 25 to 27. It says, then he, this is Jesus took a loaf of bread, and when he thanked God for it, he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine, and he said, This wine is the token of God's new covenant to save you, an agreement sealed with the blood I will pour out for you. And then down to verses 25 to 27, Jesus told them, In this world the kings and great men order their people around, and yet they are called friends of the people. But among you, those who are the greatest should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Normally the master sits at the table and is served by his servants, but not here, for I am your servant. That's Jesus' solution for division. I mean, here's the point. There is but one table that Jesus invites all of us to. This table we call the Lord's table because it is the Lord's table. It's not a Lutheran table. It's not a Missouri Synod Lutheran table. It's not a Methodist table or a Charismatic table. It's not a Reformed table. It is not a Protestant table. It is not a Catholic table. It is the Lord's table. Table. And at the Lord's table, who does the Lord serve? The Lord served all the disciples, all who claim him as Savior, all at his table. And remember, he even served Judas. See, the body and blood of Jesus is for all who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, who claim him as King of Kings. It's that the Lord table that all of our differences disappear when we come forward tonight it's here that we all stand literally on the same level we're on the same level at the foot of the cross it's here where we stand that we are all sinners it is here where the grace of god is poured out to all of us it's here where there is forgiveness of sins for all people You know, division may have succeeded in dividing Christ's church, but Jesus has found an absolutely wonderful way to bring his church back together again. How did he do that? Well, he did it through a Jewish man who stirred up the entire Roman Empire. His name was Jesus. And Jesus gave to the Apostle Paul one of the greatest analogies of the church. He said that church is like a human body. Now, that's us. Now, who's the head of the church? We know it's Christ. The rest of us are all parts of this body. We're all different. Some of us are legs and arms and feet and toenails and hair. You know what? We're all body parts. We're all parts of this body. But even though we're all different, Christ unites us and calls us his church. We're part of his body. It is the body and blood of Jesus that unites us. And as long as we proclaim Christ as Lord, as long as we continue to preach Christ crucified, we're united. The time has come to lay aside differences. I mean, the time always comes to work together to share the good news of forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. The time is here for us to bring those who are broken and hurting to Christ, who heals everything. It's time to cast out the demon of competition and work together for the sake of Jesus. It's time to stand in the shadow of the cross, to stand in the shadow of Christ and let him cast division from us once and for all. You know, there's a real beautiful image that the early church had regarding communion. And I can all remember celebrating it this way uh, for a period of time. Nancy, may remember the circle. The circle. The communion table was actually placed in the center of the room in the early church. And as the community of faith gathered around that table, they truly believed that Christ was there to serve through their pastor or their priest. And as the pastor served the people, he served not only those people who were there in body, but also those who were there in spirit. All the saints of the past and the saints of the present were there. And even the saints of the future, they thought, were at this table. I mean, they felt that all who believed in Christ, past, present, and future, who know him, participated in this great marriage feast. I believe that we sometimes forget how powerful the Lord's Supper really is. Maybe you've heard me say this before, but you know, if you read your scriptures, you go through the biblical narrative, what was the primary way that Jesus healed people? One of those ways was He touched them, He put His hands on them, and He healed them. I don't know of any other way, short of Jesus coming back tonight and doing it, to experience an honest-to-goodness, real touch of Jesus other than through receiving his body and blood. You can't get any closer than that, friends. I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that with communion also comes healing. I believe healing of body, mind, soul, and spirit. It's at this table that we come about as close to heaven as we're going to get. It's at the table of the Lord where we really become one. And so this evening I invite you to share in this time of communion with Jesus and all of the saints of his church. And so we come and we remember.